At our church, uh, we make it a habit of reading consecutively through the Word of God. That is, years ago, we began at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and every Lord's Day, we take another passage in God's Word, and it is read, and then one of our men will provide an exhortation to God's people, and the plan is to continue doing that until we get to the end of Revelation, and then if I'm still around, we'll start all over again. We do this in obedience to Paul's exhortation to Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Different churches do that in different ways, but that's how we do it. In the Scripture reading, in our services, we're currently in the book of Lamentations. And as a preacher, I find that our Scripture readings are sometimes a frustrating experience. With very rare exceptions, I preach through books of the Bible. I'm currently preaching through the book of Leviticus. We began in Leviticus 1, we're currently in Leviticus 6, and we'll keep going until the end. The reason, then, that I sometimes experience frustration with the Scripture readings in our services is that as our men are reading from the text, from whatever book we happen to be in at the time, we'll often come across passages, and I will say to myself, as the Scripture is being written, I'd really love to preach on that. But because I'm committed to preaching through books so as to preach the whole counsel of God, there's not opportunity to do so until we get to that particular book. So when I get the opportunity to come to other churches, this is my chance. So I want to thank you for that, because what we're about to examine in the Word of God is one of those passages. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. Father, as together your people look to your word today, we pray, Father, that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells in your people, the word might be illumined for us. Give us understanding. May we profit from your word today, according to your promise, that all scripture is inspired and profitable. This, Father, we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for His glory and for our good. Amen. Well, as always, it's necessary whenever we come to a portion of the Word of God to begin by examining the passage in the contextual setting in which we find it. Whenever I open the Word, I try not to assume that everyone who is hearing me would have a familiarity with whatever particular portion of Scripture 
that I'm addressing. And that's even more true for us when we come to a passage in the Old Testament. Because very few of us know the Old Testament as well as we ought. So let's begin with some of the basics. As you may know, the prophetic books of the Old Testament are divided up into two groups. There are the major prophets and there are the minor prophets. And these books are called major and minor, not because some are more important than others, simply because some are bigger than others. So Jeremiah is one of the major prophets because it's a rather large book. But who is this man, Jeremiah? And who are the people to whom he prophesied? Well, at the very beginning of the book, we learn that Jeremiah was called to serve God as a prophet to his people while he was a relatively young man. He was the son of Hilkiah. You see this in chapter 1, verse 1. He was of the priestly tribe of Levi, and he lived within the territory of the Benjaminites that land which had been allotted to the tribe of Benjamin after the exodus and the conquest. But he was not of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Levite. He was from the priestly tribe who had been allotted land within the borders of the land given to the other tribes. The Levites did not have their own territory. We know that he was a young man because in verse 6, he responds to the Lord after the Lord has called him and says, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. So God had called Jeremiah to be a prophet, and like so many others whom God calls, Jeremiah does not feel himself to be at all prepared. You'll remember that Moses used the same excuse when God spoke to him on the mountain. Whenever I read a passage like this, I always laugh to myself a little bit. God commands someone to go and speak, and they reply, Lord, I'm not really that good at that sort of thing. And I always imagine God saying to himself, really, you think that's your problem? Now, I understand this, of course. When I was in high school, my greatest fear was getting up in class and giving an oral presentation. It's a common fear, as I'm sure you know. Perhaps you possess that fear. In fact, there was a survey performed some years ago which found that the top two greatest fears that people have are public speaking and death. In that order which means people would prefer to be in the box rather than giving the eulogy. I could certainly have raised the same objection with God that Moses and Jeremiah raised. I was 17 when I first attempted to preach, and as my wife could attest, being a witness to it, it was an unmitigated disaster. But looking back upon it now, I realized something that I didn't realize then. There are far more important reasons why, from a human perspective, God should have called someone else. 
It wasn't just an inability to speak. We can start the list with sin and ignorance. I had no shortage of either of those things. But here's the problem from God's perspective. Sinful, ignorant men are all he has to work with. And that holds true whether we're talking about preaching or any other way in which God calls us to serve him. The good news is that God is sufficient to overcome all of our weaknesses, all of our issues, all of our inadequacies. He is sufficient to take us as he finds us and to make something of us for his glory. And that is what he does with Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is primarily called to minister to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. You'll remember that after the reign of Solomon, the nation divided into the northern kingdom, the nation known as Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah. And roughly 135 years before the point we're speaking at here, before Jeremiah's call to ministry, Assyria came down against the northern kingdom and took them away into captivity. So Jeremiah is ministering primarily to those in the southern kingdom of Judah, the capital of which was Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is not going to have an easy time of it. His ministry would not be what we would refer to as successful. You know, when a young man enters into the ministry, he's got all kinds of dreams. He imagines what God is going to do through him. Now, I suppose there are exceptions to this, but it is quite common. He just knows that his church is going to explode in growth as soon as he gets into the pulpit. He knows that pretty soon he's going to be asked to preach at all the conferences. And he's going to be asked to come on radio shows. And he's going to get book deals. Well, the size of the average American congregation is 65. So there are a lot of disappointed young pastors around. Here's where those dreams become problematic. There are some men who not only entertain those kinds of fantasies, they chase after them. They lose sight of the fact that success in ministry is not about numbers, it's not about fame, it's not about book deals, it's about faithfulness. Jeremiah didn't even get a chance to dream of any so-called success because the Lord told him even before his ministry began, that by that metric, he's going to be a huge failure. God essentially says to Jeremiah, you need to listen to me, Jerry. Here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to stand in arenas telling people how wonderful they are. You're not going to be an arena preacher. You're going to be a street preacher. And I don't want you to tell people how great I think they are or how they can have their best life now. I want you to tell them how sinful they are and that judgment is about to come upon them. 
God is very specific when he speaks to Jeremiah and tells Jeremiah what he is going to do through Jeremiah. If you look at chapter 1, verse 16, you see this. God is saying, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the work of their own hands. As a result of their sin, God is going to bring the Babylonians down against Judah just as he has brought down the Assyrians against Israel, the northern kingdom. The Babylonians are going to be God's instrument of punishment and judgment upon Judah for their apostasy and their idolatry. And when Jeremiah warns the people concerning this impending judgment, they are not going to say thank you. They're going to hate him for it. Chapter 1, verse 18 says this, Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes and to its priests and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you. So the natural question to ask then is why would they oppose Jeremiah and his message? It's not very hard to understand. They are a proud, stiff-necked, and rebellious people. They have turned their backs on Yahweh. They have gone after idols, and yet they don't see it that way. They can't believe that Yahweh would be angry with them. They are his covenant people, after all. They have Abraham for their father. And so when Jeremiah comes, they not only ignored him, they not only turned a deaf ear to his preaching, but they went so far as to seek his harm. See, one of the contributing factors to this response was that Jeremiah was not the only prophet in the land. There were others as well. A few of those prophets were proclaiming the same message. At the same time Jeremiah was preaching, so was Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Ezekiel. But there were others as well who came with an altogether different message. These others were false prophets, telling the people what they wanted to hear instead of what God was saying. Instead of warning them of the judgment to come, these false prophets were providing a false hope for the people. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, we read this. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So that's the world and the context into which Jeremiah comes with his message of judgment. 
but we're dealing with Yahweh here. And so as we would expect, judgment is not the only message that Jeremiah carries with him. Intermingled with Jeremiah's declaration of judgment is also a promise of grace. There is a promise of mercy if the people will repent and turn from their sin. And this is one of the glorious things about the scripture. Whenever you see a word of judgment, you see very close, in close, very close proximity, a word of grace. Because God is a God of judgment. And he is a God of mercy. Saw an interesting video some time ago. It was a short clip of a talk given by Jordan Peterson. Some of you may be familiar with him. In which he was discussing the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Apparently he had written a book in which he discussed these things. And in that book he spoke of the difference as he saw it between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, as if they were different. He considered the Old Testament God to be much more wrathful and judgmental than the God of the New Testament. Now, it's not a surprise that an unconverted man would come to that conclusion. It's not exactly a new idea. People have been saying similar things going all the way back at least to the heretic Marcion in the second century. What I did find interesting, however, is that by the time of this lecture from which this clip was taken, Peterson had changed his mind somewhat. It seems that a friend of his, another Canadian psychologist, had convinced him that the view he had put forth in his book, and here's the interesting part, the view he had put forth in his book that separated the Old Testament God from the New Testament God was too Christianized. Which I thought to be a very bizarre idea. Because I cannot, un- I, I cannot think of an understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament that is less Christian than that. There is no distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. That God is the same God. The God of the Old Testament is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. And the God of the New Testament will judge the world in righteousness. There is one God who is both righteous, holy, and just and merciful, and gracious. If he had only read the book of Jeremiah, Peterson might have come to understand the truth of the matter. In one way or another, whenever judgment is declared, you will find mercy being offered. It's in that context of announcing judgment yet promising mercy that our text comes into play today. Thus, says the Lord, stand by the ways and see 
and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, that's an invitation. That's an offer of mercy and of grace in the midst of a book which is primarily declaring judgment. Yahweh is speaking to the nation through Jeremiah, and He speaks as if speaking to a man who is lost, a man who has lost his way. And the advice that is given is to stand by the ways and see. That's really good advice. It reminds me of the old saying, if you find yourself in a ditch, stop digging. If you're lost, stop walking. Stand there. Regroup. Think things through. So here's a man who has lost his way, and he's being told, stand there. Stand by the ways and see. And as he stands there and looks, he finds that he's at a crossroads. There are two paths. That's why he's told to stand at the ways, plural. Now he has a choice to make. Which way? Which path? He can't stand there wavering between two paths forever. He's got to make a decision. He's got to choose which path will he choose. Now, I'm going to admit to being a bit of a Neanderthal when it comes to poetry, but if you forced me to name a favorite poem, it would probably be The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler, there I stood to where it bent, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing of time had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. The reason, I think, why that poem strikes me as it does is because I see it in a way that Frost never intended. I see it through a gospel lens. And I know that Jesus is the road less taken. And in my life, Jesus has made all the difference. The problem with Frost's poem, of course, is that in the end, as he looks back over his life, he sees that his choice of road ultimately did make a difference. But in the moment, as he's standing there, deciding between two paths, he doesn't think it really matters that much which one he takes. 
And it's at this important point that Frost and Jeremiah diverge. For Jeremiah, there's only one choice. We're to ask for the ancient paths, the old paths, because that is where the good way is. And then finding that ancient path, we are to walk in it. It's there, and only there, that we will find rest for our souls. Other paths will not provide that rest. Other paths will lead us to other destinations. For Frost, that doesn't really matter, because for him, the journey is the thing. And one destination for Frost is as good as another. But Jeremiah is telling us that's not the case. It's the destination that matters. Which path you choose matters. So through Jeremiah, the Lord is presenting Israel with a picture. It's the picture of a traveler, a wanderer. There is a man on a journey, and he comes to a crossroad, and God says, look, you've got to make a choice, and you better make the right one. So the wise thing to do is to ask. You'd better get some counsel, because this is the most important choice you're ever going to make. Find someone who can point you in the right direction. Find someone who will show you the right path to take. Now note the command in verse 16, the first command in verse 16, stand by the ways. What does that tell you? It tells you that prior to this command, the man was not standing. He was moving. He was walking. He didn't know where he was going, but he was on his way. That probably sounds familiar to you. We've all got GPS now, but some of us can remember when a common source of humor was found in the male tendency to never ask for directions. The attitude of the male of our species always seemed to be, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm making good time. But God speaks to his people and says, listen, the first thing you need to do is stop. Stop walking, stop moving, look around, see your situation, and then ask for help. Ask for counsel. Ask for direction. But before you do anything else, you need to stop and see. And then you need to ask. Of course, the problem with the people of Judah is that they had entirely forgotten that there was a destination. If we ask for directions, typically we'd say, all right, look, here's where I'm going. Can you tell me how to get there from here? But that's not what the Lord says to Judah. They don't even know what their destination is or if there is a destination. And so right now, due to the condition of Judah, all he says to them is, look for the ancient path. Don't concern yourself at this moment with the destination. Just get on the right path. The path will take you there. 
Why the ancient paths? Because the ancient paths will lead to the ultimate, correct, desired destination which God knows. Yahweh knows what is best for His people. And He knows how to get them there. I mean, this is the Gospel, isn't it? Isn't this what the Gospel does? Isn't this what the Gospel is? There are multitudes of people out there, and perhaps some sitting here this morning, who not only don't know the destination, they don't even know there is a destination. And they certainly aren't looking for it. They're living their lives as if this is the destination. As if there's no place else. And we come to them with the gospel. And what are we saying? We're saying, stop. Stand still. Look at who you are and what you're doing. Understand your condition. Understand your need. Listen to me because I can point the way. It's a good way. It's the way that will lead you to rest. That's the Gospel. And the good way is the ancient way. The good way is the old way. The ancient paths. Now, be careful here. The Lord is not saying that everything old is good and everything new is bad. It's not what He's saying. I'm standing up here. I've got my sermon notes on an iPad. I do find that the older I get, the more technology confuses me. But I'm not against technology. Neither is our Lord. That which is new can often be good. But here in the book of Jeremiah, there is a specific context in which the Lord makes this distinction. Jeremiah is not just making blanket statements that the old is good and the new is bad. He's setting forth a contrast between two different ways. One way is the way that God has set forth in His Word, the ancient paths. The other way is the way Judah has chosen. And that way, in this context, are new paths, the paths of idolatry. Remember when the people, what the people of Judah had done. They had forsaken the commands of God for novelties. When Israel engaged in idolatry, they were deceiving themselves. They rationalized their idolatry by telling themselves that they were still worshiping Yahweh. Even though they were doing it in a different way. They were just doing it a little differently. They wanted to be like the nations around them. Who all had visual representations of their gods. When Aaron took the gold from the people after the Exodus, while they had, when they had come there to Mount Sinai, Aaron took the gold from the people and he created a golden calf. Now, that's not what Aaron said. You remember what Aaron said. How does this golden calf get created? Well, I took some gold and I put it in the fire and boom, there it was. Perhaps one of the most humorous statements in all of Scripture. It's like the excuse that a child would give. 
But Aaron couldn't think of anything else at the moment, so there he goes. But Aaron created that golden calf. And he made a proclamation at the time. Exodus chapter 32, verse 5, he says, Tomorrow shall be a feast. Now that I've created this golden calf, tomorrow there shall be a feast to who? The Lord. Yahweh. The Israelites rationalized their idolatry by telling themselves that they were still worshiping Yahweh. And we who name the name of Christ have to ask, has anything changed? The desire for novelty, the desire to be like the world around us, is part and parcel of the fallen human heart. Nobody wants to be different, after all. Even those who think they're being nonconformists are just conforming to a different subset of the culture, but they're still conforming. Isn't that what people mean, after all, when they talk about the church needing to be relevant? Brothers and sisters, so much of the church has forsaken the ancient paths because we want to be more like the world around us rather than what God tells us in that we are to be distinct and separate, a peculiar people. But we want to be relevant. We want something new and novel and exciting and we think the ancient paths are not enough. The Bible? It's so old. The Bible's been around forever. The Bible's boring. Everyone has the Bible. What else do you have for me? The Bible. It's so ancient. And so we look elsewhere. We look to culture. Culture is always new. Culture is always Relevant Culture is always cutting edge. So much of the church stands at the crossroads and says, let's take that new path where we immerse ourselves in the culture and then maybe when the world sees that we like the same things they do, then they'll like Jesus. It's really a bizarre rationale. Many churches have chosen the path of politics. That's a really crowded path today. And it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum one may be on. There are so-called churches on the left who have strayed so far from the ancient past that they advocate the murder of children in the womb and a sexual ethic that no Christian prior to the late 20th century would recognize. And then you have churches on the right engaging in idolatry every bit as heinous as ancient Israel. The difference being that their idolatry is cloaked in a cover of patriotism. 
how many churches next month will devote their worship services on the Sunday before the 4th of July, not to the worship of the triune God of Scripture, but to the praise of an earthly nation and the proclamation of a political philosophy. Yahweh says to us, as He says to ancient Judah, ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the paths which existed before the latest cultural trend. The paths that existed before the United States was even a thought in anyone's mind. Ask for the ancient paths which constitute the good way. And what is the good way? It is the good way marked out by the Word of God. Jump down for a moment to verse 19. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. They have not listened, and what they have heard, apparently by accident, they have rejected. But, If they will ask, if they will follow, if they will walk in it, then there is a promise given, and that it is a gracious promise. If you stand by the ways and see, if you ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, if you walk in it, you will find rest for your souls. We all read it earlier. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, I can't speak for anybody but myself, but I find myself more and more needing that rest as I see the world around us deteriorating. To anyone who loves Christ and loves His Word, it is grievous to the soul. And I find that I need rest. And that rest is found in these things that we're talking about today. Embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. There is rest in Him because we know that He is sovereign, that His will will be accomplished, that His kingdom will be built, His church will come to completion, and He will bring His people home to Himself forever. There's rest there. Our Lord, when He spoke those words we have recorded in Matthew 11, was quoting... Jeremiah. According to the New Testament use of this passage, where do we find rest for our souls? By coming to Christ. By taking His yoke. By learning of Him. It is in coming to Christ who Himself is the way. The path. By bringing ourselves under His yoke, submitting our minds and our will to the Word of Christ, it is by doing these things that we find 
rest. Now, having examined the text in this way, we're left with a question. How do we do this? How do we obey? We're told what to do. We're told to stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. We're told that if we do that, we will find rest for our souls. But what does that look like? What does that mean to you and to me and to the man out on the street? We're not left to guess. We're told in verse 17. And I set a watchman over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. Listen to the sound of the trumpet. What trumpet? Maybe I need to go out and buy some Louis Armstrong records, some Miles Davis. The Lord's referring, of course, to a common method of defense utilized in the ancient world. God said, I've set watchmen over you. Ancient cities would be constructed with walls around them. And upon those walls would be watchmen. And it was the responsibility of the watchmen to keep an eye out for any approaching threats. And if the watchmen discerned the presence of a threat, they would sound the alarm, which in the ancient world would have been a trumpet. Who are the watchmen about whom God is speaking? Well, in the immediate context, Jeremiah is one. The prophets are the watchmen. Those who warn of impending judgment are the watchmen. Those who proclaim the gospel are the watchmen. This is an image we see repeatedly, particularly in the book of Ezekiel. So God has sent watchmen. He has sent his prophets like Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is sounding the trumpet. Danger is coming. And Jeremiah is letting everyone know he has been faithful to his calling. He is warning the nation. But the people have disregarded him. Last line of verse 17. But they said... We will not listen. Jeremiah has told them which path to take, and they've said, we're going to take this one instead. We will not walk in it. He has blown the trumpet, and they have said, we will not listen. Well, all of that is interesting history. But the application of it comes down to you and to me. What about you? Have you heard the sound of the trumpet? I'm blowing it right now. Will you listen? Will you heed the warning of the trumpet? Or will you ignore it? When Ezekiel speaks of the watchman, he sets two different scenarios before us. In the first, the watchman sees the danger coming, but neglects to tell the people. In that scenario, the blood which is spilt is on the head of the watchman, because he failed to fulfill his responsibility. 
In the second scenario, the watchman blows the trumpet, he gives warning, but if the people don't listen to the warning which has been given, then their blood is on their own heads. I'm blowing the trumpet this afternoon. I'm doing my job. I'm fulfilling my responsibility, and I know Pastor Joe is doing his as well. I know he's blowing the trumpet, and I know he does it every week. But you, hearing that trumpet, have a choice to make. Will you ignore the trumpet, or will you heed it? If you heed the trumpet, then you will obey the Lord's command to follow the ancient paths. But heeding the trumpet has to come first. You won't listen to the instructions unless you've heard the warning. So which path are you on? Are you walking on the ancient path? Have you heard and heeded the watchman? And having heard the watchman, have you come to God through the only way that He has made? The Lord Jesus Christ. Have you confessed your sin? Have you turned from your sin? And have you trusted in the person and work of Jesus? Have you entered the path of grace? Are you walking in the path of obedience, performing the good works which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them? What if you're not on that ancient path? What if today, having heard the trumpet, you recognize that you are on the wrong path? You've taken the path of sin and self. You've been attempting to blaze your own trail. Here is the glorious good news concerning the grace of God. No matter how far along you may be on that other path, there's always another crossroad. There's always another opportunity to get on the right path. Every time you hear the gospel, it is another opportunity to change your direction and to choose the ancient path. What will you do today? By the grace of God, will you turn? Will you stop and look and and choose the ancient path? It is not too late. While you have breath, it is not too late. In terms of the gospel, there is never a point at which you can say, I can't get there from here. No matter who you are, no matter the depths of your sin, the grace of God is greater than your sin. The way, the ancient path, it goes through the cross. That's what Christian discovered in John Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. He couldn't get on the way to the celestial city until he first came to the cross. And at the cross, the burden of sin which he carried fell off his back and rolled down into the empty tomb, which was then sealed. And he was free of it forever. That was when he found the ancient path. And then he got on that way which led him eventually to the celestial city. 
And that is still the way. It's a narrow way, but it's the only way. Jesus Christ said it Himself of Himself. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Make the right choice. Choose the ancient path. Choose Jesus.